Amen. You can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We are back in Romans. I'm very excited to be back in Romans. Very grateful for uh, the preaching ministry of Pastor John Nick Hill over the last few weeks uh, and Dr. Jonathan Pennington at the first of the year. Just grateful uh, that God equips his church with multiple preachers and pastors. We have many faithful pastors in the life of Mosaic Church, and I'm grateful for each of them. Uh, and uh, just excited to get to jump back into Romans with you today. We'll be in Romans 6 and 7 this spring. That's where we're going to be at, Romans 6 and 7. So over the last year, we have been deep into Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we continue our study of Romans this spring by diving into Romans chapter 6 and 7. But maybe you're like, listen, this is my first Sunday here, or I just showed up a couple of months ago, or hey, I've already forgotten what we discussed in Romans 1 through 5. So let me just give you a bit of a recap, just to kind of catch us up to this moment. I think that'll be helpful for all of us. So Romans is a missionary letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Its audience is a church that's composed of both Jews and Gentiles. And there's a little bit of division in that church. We're not quite certain as to exactly the specifics of some of that discrepancy and division, but we know that it's there, and we think that it's stemming from a result of the diversity of the church, the Jews and the Gentiles trying to learn how to live together in the gospel of Christ as one church. Now, Paul's never been to this church. He's never been to the church in Rome, though they certainly know him by reputation. They know who the apostle Paul is. They were familiar with his name. They were familiar with his ministry. But Paul has sent this letter, and he sent it at the hand of Phoebe. Of Phoebe. That's one of the reasons why in the series of Romans, every time that we read Scripture to begin our service, we have one of our sisters in Christ read it, because that's what the original audience would have heard it in, is the voice of Phoebe. And so Phoebe carries this letter to the church in Rome from the Apostle Paul, and it has one central message, and it's the gospel. That's the central message of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the message of the gospel. We've defined it from the beginning as the good news that God saves and God reigns. So two dimensions of the gospel, the vertical dimension of the gospel, the good news that God saves, and the horizontal dimension, the good news of the gospel that God reigns. So the gospel is the good news that God saves and God reigns. And the first five chapters of the letter are really just trying to kind of set the table for us. In Romans 1 through 3, we hear that we desperately need something that we absolutely lack, which is righteousness. We desperately need the righteousness of God, the righteousness that comes from God, and yet we don't have it and we can't get it on our own. That's the bad news of the good news of the gospel. Romans 1 through 3, we are broken by sin. And we are condemned to death and the judgment of God because we lack righteousness. And in Romans 4, Paul introduces the truth of the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. That even though we lack righteousness, God can declare us righteous by grace through faith. Even though we are born unrighteous, not seeking righteous, no one seeking after God, God can do what we could never accomplish on our own, and he does it by declaring us righteous, by grace through faith. And in Romans 5, we find out exactly the object of this faith, which is the righteous one, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. 
Romans 5 is where we spent 13 sermons in the fall. And we get this glorious chapter proclaiming the good news that Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So by the time we get to Romans 6, we have heard the world and everything in it was created by God. But almost from the very beginning, there was sin that entered into the world. And due to the sin of Adam, everything in the world broke and everything that was human and creaturely was broken from the start up until the time of the letter to the church in Rome. And yet God, in his grace and kindness, has stepped into the world in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in order to redeem restore, save, and reign. That's what we know so far when we get to Romans 6 and 7. But you might be wondering, why spend this much time in just one book of the Bible? Because by the time it's all wrapped, we'll be here for four or five years, I imagine. Why spend this much time in Romans? It's because I believe we desperately need the gospel. We desperately need it. We don't just need a little bit of it. We don't just need thimblefuls of the gospel. We need oceans of gospel power. And Romans is chapter after chapter of gospel, of good news. Romans is like a gospel onion. It's layer after layer after layer of good news, of substantive truth, of deep doctrine that builds within us a keen awareness of our desperate estate and a deep desire for the only one who can meet it, for the only one who can provide the righteousness that we need. And so today we enter into Romans 6 and 7, and Paul begins with a question. So let me read Romans 6, 1 through 4, and afterwards I'll say this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He has spoken. So we respond, thanks be to God. Let me read Romans 6, 1 through 4 for us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We know that even as the letter to the church in Rome says, your word never returns void. And so we ask, God, that you would use it powerfully in our lives to confront, to convict, to comfort, and to bring us into the life changing, transformative power of the gospel. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I want you to see two things in Romans 6, 1 through 4. So if you're taking notes, you can write them down. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, there is a strong no and an even stronger yes. There's a strong no and an even stronger yes. Paul begins this chapter with a question. This is pretty common throughout Paul's letter to the church in Rome. If you read the letter, you'll see that Paul often uses a rhetorical question to begin a new line of thought. And he does this here in Romans 6.1. Look at it. What shall we say then? Okay? Why is he asking this question? He's saying, okay, in light of everything I have told you, in light of all of these things, Romans 1 through 5, what shall we say 
then? He goes on with another question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this is an interesting question. And you might ask, well, why is he asking this question right now? Well, because Paul in chapter 5 has just told the church, God and God alone does the work of salvation. Only God can do it. And he has graciously provided all the salvation you need in Jesus Christ. And you can receive it by grace through faith in Jesus. This is what Romans 4 and 5 were getting at. 4 was kind of implicit, but in Romans 5, it is absolutely explicit that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus. And so let's just kind of walk that back a little bit. Let's talk about grace. Because it's crucial that we understand because Paul is anticipating that maybe his audience will misunderstand grace. So let's kind of recalibrate here. When he says by grace, what do we mean? When Romans 5 is talking about justification by grace, what does that mean? Well, it means God's unconditional love. We define grace as an incongruent gift. It doesn't match what we deserve. And it produces impact in our life. Let me... I've found that maybe this is a helpful way to understand how grace operates. Grace isn't given to you because you're fit for God. Grace is given to you so that you will be made fit for God. Grace isn't given to you because you're fit for God. God doesn't look at you and says, that life measures up, here's a little bit of grace. God doesn't look at your life and say, you know what? I think that you're kind of already trending in this direction. Let me give you some grace to complete that little extra step. No, God looks at your life and says, you don't measure up. You're not fit for God. Here is grace. Grace makes us fit for God. It's not given to us because we deserve it. It's not given to us because we're in alignment with it. It's not given to us because we measure up. It's not given to us because we're fit for God. It's given to us to make us fit for God, to bring us into alignment. This is the incongruent gift of grace. It's unconditional. It doesn't mean that it doesn't produce change. It means that change is not a prerequisite to receiving it. That's grace. That's grace. And this grace is received through faith. Faith isn't a VIP card. Faith isn't a golden ticket. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. That's what the old theologians called it. It's the straw of salvation is what one theologian has said it to be. It receives everything from the work of Christ and contributes nothing to it. Faith is the first gift of grace that God gives to a soft heart. And this faith is placed where? Not just in faith itself. It's not just believing in belief or faith in faith itself. No, this faith is only as good as the object it is placed upon. This object, the object of the Christian faith, is Christ Jesus, the source of all God's saving benefits. Paul says in Romans 5, 20 through 21, to end that chapter, he says this. This is what's ringing in the audience's ears when he asks the question that you hear at Romans 6. This is what's resounding. Listen to it, just so you can get it into your system, because maybe it will help us understand why he begins chapter 6 with this question. This is how he ends Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace 
also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why does he ask this question now? Because Paul is assuming that someone in the audience might think, well, if that's the case, if where sin increases, grace abounds even more, if where sin has increased, grace has abounded all the more, then I guess I can kind of just live however I want. Because if sin, when sin shows up, if I've received God's grace, when sin shows up, if grace shows up after the fact and it outweighs the sin, then I can just kind of do whatever I want, right? If sin increases and grace disproportionately increases over and over again, then I guess on the whole, it's kind of a net win for grace, right? It all kind of comes out in the end. I mean, if grace increases where sin increases, I can just live however. I can just do whatever I want because grace won't ever run out. Now, it's true. It's gloriously true that God is an inexhaustible well of grace, and God's grace never ever runs out. It never runs dry. But Paul wants us to see that the line of thinking that would suggest, well, if I've received grace, I can kind of just do whatever I want, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the good news of the gospel. And in Romans 6 and 7, he's exploring this misunderstanding so that we don't miss what the gospel is inviting us into. Look at how he responds to this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2. By no means, exclamation point. By no means. Now, I, I know it's hard to read this phrase and understand it, but this is a very strong no. In the Greek, the way that it's written, this is, it just couldn't be any clearer that Paul is basically, he's stomping his foot and he's saying no. By no means. It's like he's saying, no, no, no. That's wrong. Don't go down that path. That pathway leads to destruction. It's, it's almost like he's looking at you about to pull the lever on something that will lead to your destruction. And he's reaching out and he's screaming, no, by no means. And then he asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul gives us a strong no to this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No. And we don't like to hear the word no, do we? I mean, I don't like to hear the word no. When we're told no to something we want, we, we don't like that. Maybe you're raising someone in your home who doesn't like to hear the word no. Maybe you have a friend, a spouse, a coworker, a boss who does not like to hear the word No. We don't like to hear the word no. We want to hear yes, 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 not no, no, no. But there are times when no is exactly what we want to hear. There are times when no is exactly what we want to hear. How many of you have taken a rapid test in the last 18 months? Huh? What are you hoping for? No. 
There are times when no is exactly what you want to hear. Have you ever been on the other side of an x-ray or diagnosis when all you want to hear is no? There are times when no is all we want to hear. And even more often, there are times when no is exactly what we need to hear. This no here may not be something right now that we want to hear, but it's exactly what we need to hear. No. What Paul is telling us here is a resounding no. But it is a no that we need to hear. It is a no to falling into living in such a way that chains us to destruction, which is to presume upon grace, which is to live in a way that is high-handed to God's gracious generosity, to live in a way that maybe it begins to look like we actually don't want And we don't want what God is providing. We merely want the license to do what we would, even if God wasn't in the equation. Paul knows that's a temptation to a portion of his audience, and it is. It was a temptation then, and it's a temptation now. To hear the message of grace and to say, man, that sounds like a blank check with high degrees of safety and security. To do whatever I would do even if God wasn't here. And Paul, he doesn't just express confidence and certainty in saying, no, that is a bad way. It leads to destruction. He expresses a sense of confusion. That's the next question. Look at it. He asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, there are really two questions here. There are two questions in this one Question. The first is how is it possible for those in Christ who have experienced salvation to step into sin? And Romans 7 is a full scale exploration of that question. So I'm just going to kind of maybe just touch it real quick here because I don't think it's the central question that Paul's asking here, but I think it's a part of it. It's important to note that while we experience salvation by grace through faith in Christ, after we are saved, there are still remnants of the old that remain. And those remnants of the old that remain, they show up and they show out. And they play themselves out in our lives. So yes, Christians having experienced salvation still sin. And guess what? The good news is that God's grace is still there when we sin. I love how John writes this in his letter in 1 John. He says, Beloved, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. I love that, how John says it. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's saying, I want you to not sin. And I'm telling you as your pastor, I want you to not sin. I want you to not sin. I want you to pursue holiness. I want you to pursue righteousness on the firm foundation that you can never lose, that God has given freely by grace through faith in Jesus. I want you to pursue a righteous life. But let me tell you, if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. Christians still sin after experiencing salvation. And Paul's going to explore this in detail in Romans 7, and we'll join him in that. I think that's a part of what he's asking here, but... I think there's something that's maybe 
a little bit more specific than this. Something that might surprise us. Why would someone choose to do this? I think that's more of the heart of what Paul's getting at in this question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Why would someone choose to do this? Why would someone go back to sin after they have tasted Jesus? I think there's a sense in which many of us might even be confused by the question. Isn't grace given to us so that we are forgiven when we sin? Yes, grace covers our sins. This is gloriously true. But here is something that Paul wants us to not misunderstand about the grace that's given in Jesus. Grace doesn't just cover our sins. Grace empowers us so that we can choose not to sin. And we can choose Christ and his holy way as the better portion. Grace is given to us not just so that our sins will be covered, but so that you and I can look at that which is wrong and does not lead to the joy promised in Jesus and that which is righteous and does lead to the joy promised in Jesus and say, I don't want that, I want this. I want what's better. I want what's good. Grace doesn't merely forgive. Though it does. Grace empowers. Grace doesn't merely forgive. Grace frees. Grace doesn't just forgive us of unrighteousness. It frees us to live righteously. Grace is bigger than we think it is. Not smaller, not more truncated. It's larger than we could even assume. Grace doesn't just cover our sins. It empowers us. It empowers us. But Paul doesn't just have a strong no here. He has an even stronger yes. Look at verses 3 through 4. More questions. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, the no is strong, but the yes is even stronger. God does something in the life of those who place their faith in Jesus. He roots them in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. To such a degree that Paul can use the imagery of baptism, that you were baptized. I know when we think about baptism, we think about the symbol that kind of marks one of the ordinances that marks what God has done in our life, and that is true. And maybe his audience would have had some of that in mind. But I'll tell you what they would have heard when they heard this word. They would have heard, you are immersed into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It engulfs you. It overwhelms you. It surrounds you. That's what they would have heard. Baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus would have meant nothing short to this audience of Jews and Gentiles than that what Paul is saying is that when you experience salvation, you are now brought fully in to the life of Christ Jesus. It engulfs you. It immerses you. His story becomes your story, and your story becomes a playing out and a participation and an acting out of the story of Christ Jesus. Baptized into his death. He roots us. God roots us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's phrase here, baptized into Christ Jesus' death, 
is trying to help us see that we can and should say no to sin because it has been put to death in Jesus. We have lost the consequences of sin in Christ, and now we can live free from the chains of sin in Christ Jesus. It's not just a forgiveness. It's not just an absolution. It's not just a renewal and restoration of a moment. It is an ongoing thing. You see, Paul in Romans 6 and 7 is beginning to flesh out what we call the doctrine of sanctification. And if Romans 4 and 5 were all about the doctrine of justification, Romans 6 and 7 are really trying to invite us in to the doctrine of sanctification. And these are really two dynamics of salvation. Justification. Uh, Paul scholar Doug Moo, he, he phrases justification and sanctification this way. I think it's really helpful. I'm going to give it to you and then I'm going to rephrase it, okay? In justification... We are acquitted from the guilt of sin. We're declared innocent. We're declared righteous. Justification, we are acquitted from the guilt of sin. In sanctification, we are delivered from the practice of sinning. In justification, we are acquitted from the guilt of sin. But in sanctification, we are delivered from the practice of sinning. It's not to say that we don't sin having experienced God's grace in Jesus. It just means that there is now the invitation of God to not sin and a new heart that can choose righteousness over unrighteousness. You might think about it like this. In justification, we are forgiven for good forever. In justification, we are forgiven for good Forever. Nothing can ever change that status. It's irrevocable in Christ Jesus. In justification, you were declared righteous in Christ Jesus for good forever. You are forgiven for good forever. In sanctification, we are freed day by day, bit by bit, to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Salvation is not just forgiveness. It's fellowship and it's freedom. And I think that many of us have a malnourished understanding of salvation. Where salvation is merely God shaking up the etch-a-sketch of our lives and erasing the sin that had been imprinted upon it. But now we're here, blank, and we don't really know what to do with it. We've been forgiven, so what now? What comes now? I think many of us were sold a Christian perspective on salvation that basically begged us to understand we had a debt that we needed to have forgiven. And that once that debt was forgiven, we were now free in Jesus. But the question is, free to do what exactly? What is this Christian freedom all about? Is it just about, okay, now I can just kind of live in the limbo between now and heaven, and then when heaven happens, that's the next kind of iteration on life with God, that's, I gotta tell you, one, that's not really what the biblical story says, and two, that's really a life not worth living. Just kind of stuck in perpetual, I don't know, perpetual transition, being stuck at the gate in an airport with nowhere to go. You ever seen the terminal with Tom Hanks? No home, no place to return to, no place to go to, just living out of an airport. That's oftentimes what a Christian's view of salvation is. I've been saved. I know where I'm not any longer. I know I'm not there. But I don't really know where I'm going. I know it's heaven, 
quotes, asterisk, question mark. Sometime after death, maybe Jesus comes back before I die. I don't know, dot, dot, dot. But what does that really mean for Monday? For Tuesday, for Wednesday, for a life worth living, for a good life. Salvation is not merely forgiveness. It's fellowship with God. And it's freedom to enjoy that fellowship with God in your life. And do you know the path to enjoying all of the benefits of salvation? Righteousness. Obedience. You can expect very, very low degrees of delight and joy in salvation if you enjoy low degrees of obedience to Christ's way. You can expect very, very low degrees of purpose in the Christian life, of meaning in your following of Christ, if you experience low degrees of Christian obedience. Paul's inviting us in. He's inviting us into the ancient practice of saying no to that which is evil and saying yes to that which is good. And this is not legalism. If Romans 6 and 7 came before Romans 5, it wouldn't look good. If Paul said, what shall we say to these things? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. If you sin, there's no grace for you. That would be bad. But that's not what he said. He's given you the foundation of the good news of the gospel. He's given you grace. And he said... No one can take the righteous standing of Christ away from you. It's immovable. It's unbreakable. It's unescapable. You've been declared righteous in Jesus. Nobody can do anything to call that into question. He's going to repeat this after Romans 6 and 7 because he knows the drift is not just into lawlessness, but in legalism. Like Stephen read in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's going to come back to it. He's bookending Romans 6 and 7, which are a strong call to Christian obedience. He's bookending them with a gospel reminder so that you do not lose sight. He is not telling you you will earn your salvation through obedience. He is saying to you, if you experience salvation, a fruit of that will be obedience. It will be living in God's righteous way. Why? Because you've been baptized, immersed into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, there was a strong no because there was a stronger yes. We say no to sin because we are saying yes to life, vibrant life, abundant life in Jesus Christ. And baptism is the picture that Paul uses because baptism is a picture of this. Baptism tells the story of Christ. That Christ died and rose again for our salvation. Baptism tells the story of our salvation. When we trust in Christ, we die to the old self and or we are reborn as a new creation. And baptism tells the story of following Christ in discipleship. Each day we are invited to put to death those things that are sinful and practice resurrection with that which is holy. Each day, you and I are invited to put to death that which is unrighteous and sinful and leads to destruction and practice resurrection with that which is good and holy and righteous and true and beautiful. That's why Paul uses the imagery of baptism. 
And he says what? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. I love that phrase. I don't know where you're at today, but I have never met a single person, not one, who doesn't wish for a do-over. Who doesn't wish for a mulligan. Who doesn't wish for another chance, a fresh start, a new opportunity, a new beginning, new life. We crave new life. We crave it. Every year we convince ourselves that merely because the calendar is changing, there is an opportunity that stands before us. An unprecedented opportunity to finally live life. We crave a new life. We crave new beginnings. Salvation, it isn't just a fresh start. It's the beginning of a new life. Where by the power of the Spirit, in the story and grace of Christ, we are rewritten. We are rewritten and our stories begin to be transformed. A transformation that we crave and that God graciously provides in Jesus. And it leads to the newness of life. To new life. And I think for some in here, I think there are maybe three lies. Maybe you find yourself kind of rotating between the three of them. I know that I do. But maybe for some of you, you, when when you hear one of these, you're like, yep, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at today. For some, you believe that you're never going to be more than the sum of your mistakes. The enemy or someone or your internal sin has convinced you, you're never going to be more than your worst. You're never going to be more than the sum of your failures. Maybe it's a boss that's convinced you of that. Maybe it's a partner. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a father or a mother in your history. Maybe it was a coach. Somebody has convinced you. Maybe it's the attack of the enemy on your life. But you believe, I'm never going to be more than the sum of my failures. I'm just waiting for the next one. Because I know it's coming. For some of us, it's easy to believe that. For some of you, you believe that you're going to fall into the same patterns of sin as those who have come before you. You're just waiting. You feel like, man, I'm just destined to be a participant in the failures of my parents or my grandparents, my family or my family's family. That it's inevitable you're just going to repeat the failures of your past, repeat the mistakes of those who have come before you. Others... Maybe you're looking at grace and you're like, you know what? I am really using grace as a blanket for living however I want. We're sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I'm kind of just whitewashing over not taking sin seriously by invoking grace. And I just kind of throw it out there with my trump card. I use it whenever I'm feeling a little bit of guilt or conviction with no reference to the way of Jesus. No reference to the call that Jesus makes on the lives of his followers. And whether you're believing the first line, that you're never going to be more than your mistakes, that you're just a failure waiting for the next one, whether you believe the second lie, that you're just going to create and keep perpetuating the mistakes of your past or your family's past, or whether you're somebody who's saying, you know what, I've really just been using grace as a blanket to live however I would want, even apart from Jesus. The answer for all of us, the thing that we all need is the same thing which is to die and rise with Christ. 
to die and to rise with Christ. We need to experience God's grace in Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus that forgives and frees. The grace of God in Jesus that justifies and sanctifies. The grace of God in Jesus that redeems and releases. The grace of God that forgives us and frees us to start a new life of living with God. And you're in luck because God's grace for you is inexhaustible. And wherever you're at on that spectrum today, or if, you've, if you were one who would say, I've never experienced God's grace and salvation. I don't even have a grid for what you're talking about, but I want it. I know that I need it. I want to live in freedom, but I don't even know that I've been forgiven yet. God's grace is for you in Jesus. On the foundation of the grace that forgives, we are invited to live in the freedom that grace grants. A freedom to follow the way of Jesus, the way of life, the way of righteousness, the better way. God is inviting you and I into life in Christ, living in his death and resurrection, and of entering into the newness of life and the love of God in Christ, of which nothing can separate us, neither height nor depth nor distress, nor nakedness, nor famine, nor danger, nor sword, nor evil powers, no nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's inviting us into newness of life. What will that look like for you? How will you now live in light of that invitation? That's God's question for you and I this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would warm our hearts with the gospel, that for some in this room, God, that experience conviction, that even while I was preaching this morning, there was a sense in which they became aware that grace has merely been a cover for them to live however they would apart from God. I pray, God, that with that conviction would come the mercy and grace of Jesus and that they would respond in repentance and faith. I pray for others, others who, whether by the attack of the enemy or by the voices of the shadows on their shoulder, have come to believe that they will never be greater than the sum of their mistakes, that they are merely consigned to repeat the mistakes of those who have come before them. I pray that they would receive the invitation of grace to walk in freedom from despair, freedom from resignation, and that they would begin to live a life of righteousness on the foundation of a righteous status they can never lose. We ask you, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the name of Christ to make us a people who are immersed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that our ordinary Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays will be marked by participating and practicing and proclaiming this story. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.